Welcome to Birthright, a podcast about joy and healing in Black birth, where we share positive birth stories of those who have lived out their birthright and help heal those who have been denied it. My name is Kimberly Seals Allers, and I'm the founder of the Earth app and your host. This is where we celebrate the ways we find joy in our birthing experiences and ultimately reclaim our birthright. You may have loved and or hated her as Condola on HBO's hit series Insecure or watch her as Marie on 20s, but Christina Elmore is a beauty, a force, a Harvard graduate, and a mama of two boys. Her youngest prince was the first birth at LA's only Black-owned birthing center, a joyful Black birth premiere for the stars. In this episode, recorded on one of her giving birth day anniversaries, Christina and I talk overcoming fears, Hollywood's portrayal of Black mothers, and insecure as a cultural shifting medium for Black pregnancy, lactation, single parenting, and baby mama drama. I am Christina Elmore. I am a mother of two wonderful little boys, uh, five today is my son's fifth birthday, five and one. <laughs> um, and they are just pure joy and also chaos. And this is my birthright. Well, first of all, happy giving birthday to you. I know Thank we often think about the birthday of our children, but you gave birth five years ago today. So happy giving birthday to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's a special day. I've been thinking about it a lot. So take us back to, you know, five plus nine months years ago when you first found out you were pregnant. What was that like for you? It was, it was, it was really exciting. I um, am a planner. So this was, these were, my babies were planned, um, hoped for, wanted, and I was excited about them coming, but it was also really nerve wracking. So we found out, or I found out, and I had had a dream the night before that I was pregnant. So I was still like six days from a missed period. And I was, but I was like, I know, I think, I think I'm pregnant. And my dream, I was standing in my front yard looking at a pregnancy test and it's a positive. So then the next day I was like, well, I better go get a pregnancy test. So I did and it was positive. And the first person I called was my sister. And I'm like standing in the bathroom like, Christine, come in, come in, come in, come in. I'm freaking out. And then I was silly. I waited a whole day, went to the whole doctor, got confirmation of pregnancy, bought a card, bought a, like a baby on board sign to put on the back of my car to show my husband and be like, look. And I had been all excited for this whole day and a half. And then he sees the sign and he's like, what? What's going on? And he kind of, he's excited, but more nervous than anything. And he kind of just shuts down. And I was like, oh no. But within a few days, we were both just so overjoyed. And then pregnancy sort of hits or hit me like a ton of bricks. So the joy kind of faded. <laughs> um, right, the anticipation right. didn't, but you know, there was a lot of long, sick days. And then he arrived. Well, first of all, I just want to give a shout out to the dreams. I mean, the dreams, first of all, the dreams of pregnancy are glorious, <laughs> detailed. So you have had the, you know, the privilege to look back on two pregnancies. Tell us how they were the same, how they were different, how you perhaps cared for yourself differently. Tell us about what those two pregnancy journeys look like for you. So I didn't sort of believe the idea that, you know, as you get older, pregnancy would be changed. I was like, oh, my pregnancy will be just like the first one, my second one. will be the And 
not realizing, no, I'm four years older. I'm in a different, we were in a whole pandemic. Um, so my first pregnancy was pretty tough in terms of sickness. So I didn't get officially diagnosed with hyperemesis, but it, I probably should have. I was, it was a lot of vomiting a lot of days until the very end. But I didn't have major illnesses. I didn't get on bed rest. I didn't have preeclampsia. I didn't have any sort of major issues like that. So I was very grateful. And during the course of pregnancy, I was, I knew I had an idea about how I wanted to give birth and I had an idea about how I wanted to be cared for and how I wanted to care for myself during the course of the pregnancy. But I hadn't done enough research beforehand. So I said I was a planner, but I didn't plan that. So during the pregnancy is when I sort of started really thinking more about like, oh, am I just doing something because this is the way I've seen it been done? Or am I doing it because this is actually how I want to give birth? And so around 16 weeks, I decided to switch from my OB to midwifery care. And I found a birthing center. I interviewed a few and I found a birthing center that I liked and felt bonded with the midwives and into that kind of care and got to be in like a room that felt like a bedroom every day for my every week for my prenatal visits and I was in the same room where I would ultimately give birth and so that felt really nice and I felt supported by those women and those midwives and I had you know a great experience but then in my next pregnancy it was 2020 we were in the middle of a pandemic I was still very sick I also had a three and a half year old at home with me every day and not going to school. We're all on edge. And so it was a big different sort of emotional state. And then also physically, I was older. So I was, I thought I was sick my first one. I was really sick my second one. My body was like, oh no, we can do better. Let's show you more. <laughs> and so I was very ill. And I also still had to care for another person. I had not also, I, I don't know how I didn't think about that. I was thinking about, oh, I'll have another baby. It'll be similar in the pregnancy. I was not thinking that I had a whole nother child I still have to care for. I couldn't just lay in the bed or take a nap or put my feet up or, you know, chill out at work. So it was, it was tough, um, but it was also really great because in that pregnancy, I decided I wanted to do things differently again, that I did want midwifery care again, and that I did want to have a baby at a birth center, but that it was really important to me that I have black midwives and that the women in the room as I gave birth looked like me and my cousins and my aunties and my family. And I just kind of wanted a difference. As, although I had wonderful midwives at first, I wanted to work with women who sort of, it felt like, I feel like black women have been midwives for so long, like back when we weren't allowed to go into hospitals. I wanted something in that tradition. And I was grateful mm -hmm. to find just the best midwives in all the land. Um, Allegra Hill and Kimberly Durden. And then I ultimately was able to have a baby at their birth center. At the start, of, I was, my baby was the first boy to be born in their birth center. So it was great. They cared for me in a way I couldn't have imagined. I'm Kimberly Durden. Um, I am a licensed midwife and I'm a board certified lactation consultant. And I'm a mom and I'm a grandma. And I'm so happy to be here with you Kindred Space LA is a birth center that uh, my business partner, Allegra Hill, and I opened in, we're planning to open always, that was the long game, but actually was opened during the pandemic kind of in haste because of the great need uh, for having a birth center in what I like to say the community 
um, which our community is South Los Angeles. And what we do at Kindred Space LA, we are uh, a birth center, which means that we are a place where people actually come and give birth. Well, we know that what I know is what people who are seeking services say to me and and, and my Lately, I've been saying if I could get a, a $5 for every time I hear the same story of disappointment, fear, um, lack of feeling supported, et cetera, et cetera, in the mainstream um, healthcare system, I, I would be a very rich woman and I wouldn't have to work. People who are Black and Brown are Indigenous, um, mar- you know, queer, are experiencing extreme dissatisfaction with the medical care system, the birthing system as it exists right now. And many people are seeking an alternative. Midwifery has always been, you know, when people say, then they're talking about hospital birth these days and they say, oh, if you go to a midwife, you know, or if you go to an OB, I should say, if you go to a midwife, it's like, you're not doing it the traditional way. Because going to an OB is the traditional way. And I said, wait a second. <laughs> OB, uh, obstetrics gynecology has been around for a hundred something years. It ain't traditional. It's, that's, it's, it's some new thing. And with midwifery is truly your traditional um, care, the care that goes back to the beginning of time that like we really can't find the origin of it. Christina, it sounds like you had two shifts kind of in your thinking, right? That initial shift that said, I perhaps don't want to be at a hospital. And then that secondary shift, which was the people in the room, I want them to look like me. Tell me if you can a little bit about what do you think, what do you attribute that kind of evolution of thinking to? Was it research? Was it something you saw? Like, talk to me a little bit about those two kind of pivotal moments of awareness for you. I think the first one the deciding that I didn't want to be in a hospital had sort of been percolating for me for years. I I don't know why, but I had become sort of a, a bit of a birth nerd long before I'd had any children or even considered pregnancy. I'd watched the business of being born and I'd watched and I'd read Ina Mae Gaskin's book and I was into like birth videos, which was so weird for like a 20 something, <laughs> but I would be like coming home from grad school at night and be watching business of being born. And made, well, I remember when I first started dating my husband, I was like, we gotta watch this because this is how I'm gonna do it. And then I sort of put it out of my mind until years go by, I get married and then we start to decide to have a baby and I'm not even thinking about it. And I think until I get a little deeper into my pregnancy, I'm like, oh no, it came back to me sort of as a knowing, like I've been healthy most of my life and haven't spent much of any time in a hospital. The idea of a hospital, at least in my own mind, sort of made me think of sickness. And it made me think of, illness and and that I needed something. And I was like, oh, I'm not sick. I'm pregnant. I'm about to give birth, but I'm not broken. I'm not sick. I don't need, I didn't feel like I needed that level of care, but I was grateful for, for it to exist in case I did. Like a lot of women, we've been inundated with the idea that if you don't get an epidural, you can't have a baby, that you're not gonna be able to do it. It's the worst pain of your life. You've never felt anything like this. There's nothing, you have no point of reference. And so I think I had told myself that 
And even after watching all those amazing documentaries and reading all those books, I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do it. But I think going through the pregnancy and realizing how sick I was in terms of like morning sickness and nausea, and I was like, oh, if I can do this, I can probably do it. And if millions of women have been doing it for millennia, I could, I could probably be one of them. And so I think I just got the courage to do it. And I realized that that's what I wanted. I have a big fear of uh, a keloid. So like I had a big fear of surgery and I was like, I want to do as much as I can to maybe avoid a C-section. And I love that word around courage, because to your point, you know, we have been giving birth in fields and wherever with midwives for beginning of time. And nobody thought of it as a courageous act, but certainly in our society, in a society where we are, we have been sold fear as part of the birthing experience, the ways that we've taught to doubt our bodies and question ourselves. Now it does require courage to step out of uh, a medicalized system when to your point, birth is not a medical event, right? This is you know, a, a bit of what's wrong with our society, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. So one thing I would say about pain is that our culture in general has only one word for all the different sensations. And I mean, we have lots of words, but when we think about pain, you know, we kind of put that with like, attach it to toothache pain, we attach it to headache pain, we attach it to labor pain, and they're also very different. And, you know, one of the things is that we work with educating our clients. We have a strong education program so that they can start to prepare their mind and wrap their head around, um, you know, their ideas of pain, what is the fear around it, and how to move through it. Um, But when you really break down labor, it's, there are certain sensations that your body, almost everybody has. um, And we can say that you're probably going to feel um, at some point, um, you know, pressure and you're going to probably feel some cramping or some, um, you know, cramping, right. Or, uh, expansions is another word. Sometimes people like to say expanding as opposed to contracting. Right. And you're going to feel some, maybe some tingling or burning sensations at some point, you know, when you're pushing your baby out. And so sometimes when we kind of break it down to actually what it is, we can take away all that other stuff that gets attached to labor, um, like horrible, excruciating that, you know, those are like descriptive words, but they're not really talking about what actually is it, right? What is, what are the functions? What are the mechanism? What, you know, um, like when we talk about the letdown, you know, or or the milk ejection reflex in the breast, right? You know, we, we say like, it feels like tingling. It could feel like pins and needles. And so, it kind of like, oh, demystifies it. And people can kind of be curious about it as opposed to being scared about it and, or, and maybe more willing to let it move through them. I think that I, you know, a hospital birth can be beautiful and amazing and all those things. I just think you have to think about the reason to do anything. Are you going because you've been sold this fear that you can't do it any other way without an epidural? Or are you getting an epidural because you want one and you feel empowered by one and you want to be able to take a nap during birth? And that's also fine. And they're all, I just, I think we need to really be empowered in our choices. And I felt that. I think going into the midwifery model, my appointments were an hour long. I saw the difference immediately. I was leaving my 10-minute OB appointment, and when I started having my midwife appointments, they were an hour long, and they were talking about my nutrition and my mental health and if I've gotten enough sleep and how, what my relationship with my mom is like. And It felt sort of really um, holistic, and I was willing to risk that 
it was going to be a much harder per se, like, or, or pay, more painful labor in order to get that kind of care on the front end. And I was like, I think I can do this. And I'm willing to try because I want, I love being in this room with these women and feeling this kind of support. Midwifery care is, uh, you know, we follow typically the same schedule as your OB would follow. So we're seeing folks monthly uh, for their, the first 28 weeks of their pregnancy. Then we begin to see our clients every two weeks up until 36 weeks, and then every week from 36 weeks until birth. And then we attend and deliver the baby, but we we don't use the terminology deliver that we deliver because we know words are important. And we know that the birthing individual is pushing out a baby and we're helping, we're assisting with that. So we um, do all the care for the birth and the immediate postpartum. And then we do really great postpartum care, which I think is another huge benefit is just being able to see new parents three to four times in their postpartum, uh, in their first six weeks. Because when we think about maternal mortality and morbidity, postpartum and early postpartum is still a very special time where people, folks need to have someone that's checking in on them to make sure that they're staying in a healthy range. Because we can have blood pressure, high blood pressure after birth, we can have bleeding after birth while you're already home recovering, all those things. If you are someone that is wants to birth in a hospital, or needs to birth in a hospital, midwifery care can lovingly coexist alongside mainstream care that you would be getting from an OB. The benefit of that, for instance, with our hybrid program that we do have is you're still getting, as a matter of fact, our hybrid care program, that's for folks that birth in the hospital for whatever reason, they have longer appointments and they meet as a group, group prenatal in a fashion where you have two hours with two midwives to go over vitals, but also give that social support, resources and things of that nature. And then those folks will birth in hospital and then they come back for two additional individual pre, uh, postpartum appointments with um, one of the midwives in that program. And and it's so beneficial because the, the midwives can address things like helping them find doulas, writing their birth plan, how to advocate for themselves once they're in the hospital care system and things of that nature. For some low-risk people, they would they can use the hybrid care program as their prenatal and postpartum care and just kind of roll in to the hospital in labor because we do have a lovely, wonderful relationship with our Eisner midwives that are in and out of California Hospital and MLK. And then, but if they're higher risk, they're usually needing some additional testing and they need to kind of have their care overseen by a physician. They would do something called, it's almost like concurrent care. So they're seeing their physician, but they're coming in for these additional prenatal visits that give them more meat, uh, more bang for their buck. And so the other option is to have a home birth. And I mean, we were always in the home um, before we had a birth center, but now we're like really enjoying not always being in somewhere in LA setting up shop because um, it's really nice to have a home base with the birth center. You know where all your stuff is. <laughs> we right. do still offer home births. That is something that some, sometimes people want and that's great. Home births can be amazing. And it's similar uh, prenatal postpartum schedule, the same actually, 
Um, our clients will meet us still at our birth center for their appointments, but we will have one appointment in their home soon before they birth. So we can figure out where we're going to put the birth tub and where we're going to park. <laughs> right. But so, yeah, so that is another option. And so in terms of price points, you know, you know, home birth is actually the most expensive. It's honestly the most concierge type of care. And we're talking, you know, $7,500 and birth at our birth center is currently between 4,500 for folks that are maybe lower income and up to 6,500 for our um, folks that this is workable and doable. The good news is that insurance, you know, insurance does do some reimbursement. Despite the superlative care, especially for low-risk mothers and infants, in the U.S., only about 8% of births are attended by midwives, and Black women currently represent less than 2% of the nation's reported 15,000 midwives. That second shift in terms of wanting a Black team happened in a way that I didn't think, I think could not have happened had I not had a first baby. So had I not experienced my first birth with wonderful midwives at Graceful Birthing Center who cared for me immaculately. But I remember being in the room and I saw my mom and my beautiful black mama and I saw my husband who happens to be white. And I looked around and I saw my midwives and they were lovely. And I was in the middle of a contraction and I looked up and I realized in that first birth, I was like, oh wait, I'm the only one in this room in pain. Because at first I felt like, we're all in this together. Look at us. We're all getting this baby out. And I had sort of an epiphany. I was like, no, no, I'm getting this baby out. <laughs> it's me. <laughs> Nobody else. I looked up at my, I think my mom and midwife were both having a cup of tea. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Y'all having tea time? And I'm doing the hardest thing I've ever done. And something about that shift, I was like, oh, okay. I was surrounded by white women. When I, my baby and I were the only black people in the room when we would go to these things. And I was like, I know that there are black women doing this. I know that there are black women who are going back to sort of old school approaches and supporting each other. I just got to go find them. And I was like, right. I can't blame that on nobody else but my own sort of ignition to go find them. And so I decided to go find them. Was it hard? You know, it was not as hard as I thought it would be. So I had assumed, I had told myself, I was like, they're not... Because there were no birth centers owned by Black women or operated with Black midwives, I was like, oh, they're not here. Did you know that less than 15 minutes of your time can help make Black birth safer for us all? Earth, as in the word birth, but we drop the B for bias, is the first of its kind nonprofit rating and recommendation platform for black and brown women and birthing people to find and leave reviews of their OBGYNs, birthing hospitals, and pediatricians. My name is Kimberly Seals Allers, and I created the Earth app because I wish I had it when I gave birth. I learned the hard way that reading the doctor and hospital reviews at mainstream sites, which were overwhelmingly from white parents, was just not helpful to me as a black single mother at the time. Earth is by us and for us. In less than 15 minutes, you can complete the structured review of your birthing experience. Also, tell us about your prenatal, postpartum, and newborn care so we can inform and protect each other. We turn Earth's anonymous reviews into meaningful data to work directly with hospitals, payers, and providers to improve our care now. When it comes to safe, respectful, and dignified care, we got us. 
Download the free Earth app now and leave your reviews. Follow the Earth app on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. So take us back to the day you gave birth to your youngest baby. So uh, I think having had my first son, I, I just, I, I was like, oh, it's going to be like that again. And his labor was long. It was 27 hours and I didn't dilate past seven and a half and I had a cervical lip and uh, my, it was, it was, it was a lot. And so I was like, oh, it's going to be like that again. So I've kind of prepared myself and that's not the worst. I wasn't preparing myself for the worst. I was just preparing myself for another, another kind of icky, long meandering road. And so my first son came a week early, 39 weeks. And so I also thought, oh, okay, this, this baby will come a week early too. And I was wrong. He came at 38 weeks. And I was grateful because sort of leading up from between 36 and 38 weeks, my blood pressure started to inch up. Um, and it wasn't alarming yet, but it was getting there. And if I had gotten any higher, and if I gotten into the preeclampsia range, I would not have been able to have the burst in a birth I wanted. So my midwife sort of jumped into action and I was on all these herbs and they were coming over twice a day to check my blood pressure because they were unsure if my machine was faulty or da da da. And they jumped into care in a way that I couldn't imagine. They, they were literally coming over my house twice a day and sent me to an acupuncturist to try to help bring things down. And so I'd gone to the acupuncturist, I'm on the herbs, I'm getting my blood pressure checked. I'm still very stressed and nervous that this means my, um, my plan is not going to go as planned. And so then my mom came into town. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. My mom lives in South Africa. So she came, had to quarantine elsewhere. Then she's finally at my house. I was so grateful. And then a couple days later, we're trying to get my hair. We're doing like faux locks. I'm trying to do some faux locks in my hair so I have a birth style and don't have to do my hair. And I'm sitting there and I said, oh, mommy, I don't think I can do any more tonight. And I'm like, but I think I need to go to bed. And I, I had not with my first birth experienced much pre-labor. I sort of went right into active labor and my contractions being, you know, two minutes apart, three minutes apart. And so I was confused as to whether I was having cramps or contractions as I was sitting there trying to put in these faux locks. And I was like, oh no, this is just cramps because they're not coming close together. It's just a little cramping. I'm just going to go lay down. I laid down for just a few minutes and within an hour, I was like, oh no, this is this is labor. This is real contractions. I got three faux locks in and that's it. So I'm trying to take them out because I don't want to look a whole mess, tie a scarf on my head and I go and I don't want to wake anyone up. So I go to the bathroom. I remember that in my first labor, taking a bath for help. And I think at this point I have hours. I'm like, I know I have days until this baby's coming. It's fine. I'll just go take this bath. And then I'm like, oh no, I can't take this bath they're coming so fast. This is not happening. I got to do something. So we call, I wake up my husband. We call the midwife and she's like, oh, just come over. And I'm like, you don't have to come over. She's like, no, I hear you. It sounds like they're closer than you think. I'm just going to come over and see where you're at. And so she comes over and she says, and I think at this point it's maybe 2 a.m. or 1 a.m. And she's like, yeah, let's go. And I'm like, I'm not ready to go. I've only had these contractions for like an hour and a half. What are you talking? She's like, no, it's time. Let's go to the birth center. And, and I still am in the sort of the thought process that this is going to be like my first birth and it's going to be 30 more hours until this baby comes. I'm like, I don't want to be there for 30 hours. I'll be at home. 
and she says, Christina, it's time to go. So I get into the car and on the way, the birth center is literally six minutes from my house and I can't even, I have to stop twice to vomit <laughs> to get there in the six minutes. But we finally get there and I just go into my zone. And I remembered from my first labor that I really, I don't want a lot of noise around me, but I want to be able to make as much noise as I want. So I feel like I kind of go into my cave and I just start roaring. And for me, getting through the contractions is like holding onto my back and really like uttering some like guttural sounds <laughs> to get through each one. And, and my husband, he gives me a lot of counter pressure and he's sort of there rocking with me. And I love being in the shower. So my first baby was actually born in the shower. Um, so I'm in the shower, I got water on my back. But I had really been excited this time about trying oh, to maybe have a water birth and maybe have the baby in the tub. And I got back in that tub and I just can't get my grip in there. I felt like I was trying to push into nothing at the certain point it was time to push. And I was like, I don't know. I don't know how people in this water. I felt like I was just floating around. So I couldn't do that. Get out. And I'm thinking still eight hours in that we have hours to go. And I, I'm thankfully my midwives, I'd ask them to check me, but not really tell me where we're at. I didn't need to know numbers. And so, I mean, I just knew that I, that would make me in my head. But I, even though I'd asked them not to, I'm assuming that I'm like four centimeters dilated the whole time. And that was not true because soon enough after the worst back labor ever, I've been feeling like literally, I had not experienced any back labor before. So I was like, what is this new sensation? Is something wrong with me? But it wasn't. And it was getting my baby down. And by 10 a.m., baby was here. Wow. So like, what do you remember? In terms of that moment when you saw your baby boy for that first time? I remember just, I didn't, we, we decided not to find out his sex during the pregnancy, but I knew that he was a boy. I, I don't think I had a dream that time. I just think I just knew. And so when he came out, I think everyone was like, what is he? And I already knew. So I was just like, oh, come here, my sweet boy. And I remember looking at him and I said, oh, mush. And we still call him mush. He just looked so mushy and cute and his little lips. And, and he looked like his brother, but not like his brother, like his own person. And I was just so proud of him for all the work he had done that day and the work we had done together. And he just came and he laid right on me. And I thought, oh, this feels... I didn't believe that it was possible to do it in nine or eight and a half hours. And I was like, we did it. We, we had a... You're here already. I couldn't believe he was there. But I was so excited to meet him. And he was just the cutest little bean. And it was And I looked up and I, and I was literally surrounded by two midwives. My husband, we had a birth photographer who was also a doula. And I just was surrounded by people who had been cheering me on and telling me I could do it. But who had been doing it in a quiet, subtle way. They didn't, I wasn't like, yeah, you. I just knew by looking at their faces and their smiles and their encouragement that I could do it. And they were right. And I was so grateful that they were in the room and that it was that crew. And the student midwife, Sierra, it was such a good crew. So beautiful to have Christina be our first birth. And I'll never forget that because it was a very rainy night 
And, you know, we don't have a lot of those in LA. So it's just like, you already felt like something special was in the air. So yeah, they were. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of something special in the air, so many black women and birthing people believe or perceive that the care that they get from black midwives or black doulas or black lactation consultants is somehow different. Do you think that is true? And is it the care or is it the feeling of comfort? Um, so is there something different here? The answer lies in the person who's receiving the care, right? Mm. Because that may be true for some black women or women of color, but I don't think it's, um, you know, universal, but you know, you kind of expect that. And I think it's just at what I've heard. And Christina has said this too. I think she said this in one of her articles or one of her interviews that she felt like she was being taken care of by her aunties. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's, I think when that's part of feeling safe, right. Is like, Oh, this, this person reminds me of the person in my family who cared for me or who was a nurturer. Oh, they were, you know, and you know, so you can take a sigh Whew. and we often work in spaces that are much more non-clinical. So if folks come into the birth center they all, they just come in, you know, because our street itself is pretty nondescript. But when they walk in, they're like, oh, it feels like a home. It feels like a, oh, it feels like a, wow. You know, they're just kind of like, ah, or they come sit in the garden. And this is where we they receive their care. So what did that feel like for you to actually have this first birth and in, in this space that you, that you yourself have been birthing mm. for some time. What was that like for you? Wow. Thank you for asking these questions. I feel like I'm in therapy right now. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a great question. Um, I feel like at any birth, what's so special about birth and the way that we attend birth is that it can keeps you always in the present moment. And, you know, especially as women, we can often be multi, triple tasking, quadruple tasking, all those things. But in birth, it, you know, it's, it's like, it's slow, right? It's slow. It could be fast. It could be whatever. You have to be ready for anything. So you actually have to stay incredibly present. And that's what it was with Christina's birth. And what's challenging sometimes when you have, you know, we're in LA, so we have lots of people who are in the industry and, and things of that nature. And it can be challenging. You know, it's a very, if you have a very public persona to also have the privacy and the intimacy you, you know, need, even if you don't think you need it, but that you need as a, as a mammal to, to birth physiologically, you know? And so I'm always conscious with, in particular with my clients who are, have this pers public persona to discard that. And I mean, I'm not really one that watches a lot of, I just watch documentaries. So I don't watch a lot of like regular TV. And most of the time, as people will know, I, I do not know who, if someone is like, has a public persona, often I have no idea who they are. And, and it's, and I, and I love that because it protects, it helps me have a very clear, clean and intimate you know, I can ha get intimate in that way with a person without the, all that other stuff. And so, but I did know of her work and, but I still was able to kind of like not fangirl Christina <laughs> to death because why, why wouldn't you? She's 
freaking amazing. She's absolutely beautiful. She's just, but at the end of the day, what I really plugged into is just really that, how much of a joy it was to be in her presence and to care for her and to be invited into her family. Um, and so for me, you know, it's such a big trust piece that you're building over the course of your care with someone and in, and especially with folks in her position. So by the time you come to the birth, there's this piece in my heart that's just like, of course, wanting everything to go well. So I think I, we get kind of, I get kind of quiet, you know, quiet in my spirit and just, and, and just hold space. And I'm just there to, to do what I'm there to do, which is to monitor the baby and monitor mommy and offer suggestions if needed and make sure that we're ready for whatever we need to be ready for. And, and it's just so beautiful. And Christina's birth was, it was just wonderful. So I can almost not even remember it point by point because it's almost, you know, for me, it's a little bit of a dream space when I'm supporting families in birth. And when you look back now at, you know, kind of like the hesitations, the concerns, the fear, you know, how did that, how did you look back on all of that, all the pre-thoughts that you had about this experience? Yeah, I look back and I say, I, I really, I'm just, <laughs> I'm always so mad at myself, like, girl, why were you worrying? You say you trust God. You say you trust your body. You say you trust the thing. And I, I always tell myself, I'm like, worrying is not helping. It's making it worse. Worrying is not helping. It's making it worse. But I don't believe myself. <laughs> and I keep worrying. And so I'm so grateful that though my midwives had been concerned about my blood pressure, they never brought panicked energy. And though I knew things might not go as planned, they didn't, they weren't stressed about it. They were so confident that baby was going to come in the exact way he needed to come. But I was so glad to have their sort of unflappable confidence, even when I was shaken. Wow. What, what a beautiful, what a beautiful birthing story. What a beautiful birthing story. You know, I'm really just blown away by the ways that we as Black women are learning about alternatives, which statistically help us have better outcomes, emotionally help us seem to feel very differently about how we enter into motherhood. And I'm curious, I mean, how do you feel like these positive birth experiences, even in your first birth, impacted your motherhood journey, right? You kind of entering yeah. motherhood in this way. I think I hadn't really thought about for a long time, the sort of the connection about the way you enter motherhood and the way you end up mothering or the way you end up thinking about your mothering. And I am really grateful that it's birth is such you, you don't know what's going to happen you don't you can plan you can you can do all of the things that you think are going to help prepare you for that and you should you should take the classes you should get the acupuncture you should go to the chiropractor you should eat well all those things if you can but then the day that your baby arrives is going to be the day your baby arrives and one way or the, uh, the other it's you don't really have control over that and i'm i realize too as as i parent I do, I do as much as I can. I read the books. I pray over my kids. I try to feed them okay. I try to make sure they get enough sleep. I try to limit the screen time, but give them a little and make sure they have social interaction and I pick the right schools. But they are their own person and they are going to have their own experiences and their own... And, and I, have, I have very little control over that. I can do what I can, but I can't control it. And I think that's the way it was with my births and 
that's the way it is with parenting. And that's the way it is with all of our interactions with other humans. You do what you can. You, you give what you got. You try to be the best version of yourself you can for others. But I do often joke with my clients that, you know, I know you want your Instagram birth, but, you know, you got to work for it. You've got to, <laughs> yeah, don't come in here telling me you had hot Cheetos. With, with your ring light and, and your tripod. <laughs> but also, no, but, but beyond that, you have to, your Instagram birth is, is just as bad a message as a TV show if people don't understand that that little clip that you saw for a minute is not the whole story. And then also right. you have to prepare yourself for the experience. Like you have to do the work in order to be a low risk person and re continue to receive this care. You've got to do the, you got to do the eating right. And yes, I know we're in a food desert and I have some kale out here in the garden and I'll give you a ham, a bunch every time you come in here, but are you going to eat it? You know, you know what I'm saying? It's like, I know it's hot outside, but you need to walk. Or I know your neighborhood's not safe, but you can pull a, a yoga video up on your YouTube. You know, it's like, that's right. That is very it's true. It's really helping people because again, sometimes we do over vilify. I mean, some of these systems need to be vilified, but at the end, but it's not as black and white. And I, I think that what people also want to do, and when they come into care with us, we're going to help them take ownership of the things that they have control over so that they can create a good outcome for themselves. You know, I think particularly as black women, because our motherhood feels so much like the stakes are higher, right? Like we have to get this right. We have to keep our children safe. We have to, we have to, we have to, that that's a little bit harder for us, you know? So, you know, I think that as much as we can say that it is harder for us because we know that our parenting and our mothering and the children that we're raising have a very different journey in the world. And we want them to be prepared um, and resilient and all the other things that really no one really teaches you how to manifest in, yeah. in little people, you know? There's no real guidebook. And all of the, my sister and I, my sister's a child psychologist and we talk, and she works a lot with parents and with families of color, especially. And we talk mm -hmm. a lot about how there's all this sort of new way of parenting and, and which gentle parenting, respectful parenting, peaceful parenting, which are all beautiful and wonderful ways, but they don't always feel accessible to us as black parents. They don't, they're not, they're sometimes in a language that sounds too permissive for us or a language that doesn't sound like we're going to teach our kids to be respectful or teach our kids how to deal with the racism that's coming their way truly and the unknown and that as much as I want to do sort of these new ideas and these ways of parenting, I'm also nervous for my kids and I'm bringing my own fear and my own nerves and my own stress into it. And I, I think that so many of those tools can be useful for helping us to realize that they can learn from modeling, that they can learn from authoritative without authoritarian models but it's such a hard sort of balance to find, yeah. especially young black men. And I, I don't have it right all the time, but I'm trying to find it.
I think it is amazing for us to be able to have a different type of Black parenting that allows us to choose something different instead of just repeating patterns, which are things that I think our our foreparents didn't really have the ability or capacity to do. You know, some did, but yep. as, as a group. And so I'm excited about what this means for our Black children and, and the next generation. And so it gives me a lot of hope, you know? Yeah. I think we're building toolkits that work for our individual families, but that also work for us culturally, sort of as in general with Black families, yeah. that we can say, oh, no, you're going to put a handle on Miss um, So-and-So's name or Auntie So-and-So. But also, you don't have to give her a hug if you're not quite ready for that. <laughs> so that there's this balance that, like, you have body autonomy, but you're going to respect her by calling her auntie so-and-so. You uh, have to put something in front of her. I want to go back to, we talked a little bit about the fear of pain, which is something yeah. that I think as, you know, American women and people with the capacity for birth that everyone have, it's kind of sold to us. It's how they got us out of homes and midwifery models into hospitals. But I think as, you know, a fear of pain is very different than what Black women fear, which is a fear of death, right? And yeah. You know, the, the fear of, of ver a fear of death, which is very different than a fear of pain and a fear of near death. And so I'm curious, you know, where it fell for you and how did you balance, you know, this vision, this beautiful vision that you had for your birth with the, you know, I'm sure the fear of knowing what Black women's birth statistics are like, what our outcomes are like, what, what you're hearing. How did you balance that for yourself? I think that... I had such a strong fear about it, knowing about the ways in which we aren't necessarily listened to, the ways in which our pain isn't heard, the ways in which we're, we're thought to just sort of be strong birthing machines. And so then we're, so many doctors aren't looking out for signs from us or, oh, you know, Black women are at risk for all these things. So it's fine if you have a little touch of that, a little touch of that, because you guys are at such high risk for those. And so we're not quite heard, seen, cared for in the same way. And so for me, that fear landed me on the side of I was more interested in midwifery care as a result of my fear. I was more afraid of going to a traditional OB or traditional doctor or hospital where I thought I might not be heard. And so the idea of having these hour-long appointments with Black women who looked like me, had bodies like mine, had birthed children like mine, made me, even though it was less of a medical model and they they don't have as many interventions available to them at the birth center. I was more, I felt more safe and at ease there than I thought I might feel in a hospital where I thought people might be coming in and out a lot and not hearing me or not see and seeing my charts and seeing the machines and seeing the sounds and the beeps and the ooze, but not necessarily seeing me. And I know that that is not the experience of all hospitals. I know that it's not, I know that so many people have wonderful experiences at hospitals. I think that for me though, I did have knowing about the statistics and knowing about sort of the weathering of our cells as a result of racism, I was just so afraid. And I wish I hadn't operated in fear, but I think that fear kind of led me to a model of care that worked for me. But I hate that it had to come from feeling that. I, I, I think for the first six weeks after giving birth, I was afraid of like, what if I'm hemorrhaging and I don't know it? What if I'm bleeding and I don't know? What if this is happening and I don't have this, the signs or my blood pressure doesn't go back down. or And that sort of anxiety was real because you we hear so much about Black women, especially 
who um, who unfortunately have bad outcomes after giving birth, during giving birth, post, pre and postpartum. Yeah, yeah. It's like you survive the birth and then you're thinking you're okay. And then many of those deaths have occurred, you know, at, to your point in the weeks postpartum. I really think it's interesting and beautiful to feel like the fear drove you to safety, right? And so, um, but to think that actually that is what, you know, drove you to think, well, maybe I need to be someplace else, which for me would be the point, right? That would be yeah. the most beautiful point of it all for us to realize that, you know, there are better models for us out there and how do we make sure that they're accessible to everyone? You know, yes. that's the next hurdle. Yeah, I felt yeah. like such, it was such a privileged place to be able to choose that and to be able to choose to go outside of my insurance and to be able to pay for it and have access to it and live in a city where there are multiple birth centers at our disposal and that there are mid black midwives with the person or that is not heard of in most cities. And no. it was such a privilege. And the fact that yeah. it is the fact that it's not available for all women, it makes me sad. It's definitely sad. And our society consistently fails mothers and also working parents as a working actor, Christina, what was it like for you balancing work and motherhood? It has been a ride. I think that from the start, when we first started thinking about having kids, in most of the country, and especially most of the world, I am not a young mother. <laughs> like My first baby was born when I was 29. I was a full adult. But in LA, and as an actor in LA, I was, I did, none of my friends who were also actors were having babies, except for one. We did it sort of together. And so I was like sort of an outlier. I was like, right in the middle of your career, right when things are on the rise, you're on the show, you're doing this, you're going to have a baby. And, that's, and I've always been sort of intentional about, I love my work. I'm so grateful to have this career. It's such a blessing to be able to do the thing I dreamed of and get paid for it. But I'm going to constantly and consistently choose my life over my career. My career is one part of my life that, I'm, that I love, but the, my full life is more important. So I knew that I, I, we were ready to have kids. That's what I wanted. And I didn't know how it fit in sort of into the timing of my work, but I looked up and I realized, Oh wait, there's never going to be a right time. I'm always going to be pushed. No matter what career life you have, it's not a right time. Something is going to shift. Your life will shift because that's what happens. And so I was on a show that I was grateful for. We were going into our fourth and fifth season and I was pregnant and I called them and I told them, the producers, and they were kind and they said, congratulations. But it made, it made it so that I had to miss out on a storyline. It was an action adventure show, so a Navy show. And I was going to have to miss out on the storyline because I just could not do it pregnant. And that was fine. And then when the show was coming to a close, I was newly postpartum and I had to go back to work a lot earlier than I had expected to. And while it was hard, that was also fine. And I was grateful that it was able to sort of, that I was able to make it work. And then next time around, we were in a pandemic. So I thought, well, we're sitting at home anyway. Let me see if I can get pregnant real quick. <laughs> it wasn't real quick, but it happened. And, and so I didn't know how I was on two shows. I was insecure in 20s. I didn't know when or if they were coming back in terms of when we'd be shooting or filming or how the pregnancy would fit in. And I already knew Condola, the character, was pregnant. But we, our pregnancies weren't going to match up in terms of time. I didn't know how it will work, but I thought I'm prioritizing my life. I'd love to have another baby. And we did. 
And God is kind in that when I was about six or eight weeks postpartum, we went, I went back to work at Insecure and they had started long before and they sort of made it work for me that I could have time home with my baby. And what was a blessing that I never expected is that Condola and I'd be in very similar positions that she would be recently postpartum and so would I and that her boobs were big and her belly was big and her she, her bags under her eyes were big and so were mine and it all messed up in a way that I was like this is the dream because you know you have a, I, I had a lot of insecurities about the way that I look not in my personal life but I'm playing characters who often aren't you know, lining up with my own life journey. And so for Condola and I'd be on the same path as a blessing. And it's not easy. It's not easy to balance it, but it's worth it to me. And it's been working out. I have a husband who has, um, who owns his own business. So it's flexible. And my mom came and helped me in the most beautiful way. And my in-laws come down and we just make it work. And it's, and I need to miss out on some work and that's okay. And it also means sometimes I miss out on things at home and, that's also okay. How did you manage your infant feeding plan? Yes, I was breastfeeding and I was pumping and I was I was I was grateful that the second time around I found it to be easier to figure out our latch situation and get a groove going um and I was so grateful for that cuz I needed it to be able to be back as work at work as much as I was going to be. And I also was really blessed in that my supply, I usually have an oversupply rather than sort of lacking in milk. And so I was just in there pumping and nursing and pumping and nursing and baby was able to take both the bottle and the breast, which was a blessing too. I don't know how, you know, you just don't know what's going to happen. So it happened to work out in that way. But yeah, at work, I, they knew they called it. Oh, they, what did they say? I think one of the PAs would always be like, it's Christina's unicorn time. And they would call it unicorn. They'd say unicorn, unicorn on the headsets. And I would go every two hours and go pump real quick in my trailer, then pop back into work. And then as soon as I got home, I'd go nurse my baby. And in the night, I was nursing all night. And then wake up to have 4 a.m. call times at work. I truly don't know how I survived and didn't, like, I'm so grateful I didn't get in a car accident because I was so tired. But God provided and it worked out. <laughs> when Condola mentioned the lactation consultant, I was just over the moon, um, you know, and I'm curious, knowing that writers write and actors act, you mm-hmm. know, were there any moments for you as a mother to add context or, or words or language to some of the things that the writers did? Or did you guys just have an incredibly aware writer's room? Both, truly. Mm-hmm. So I think the episode you're referring to is written by Jason Liu. And he, at the time, was a new dad, too. So his baby, I think, was one or not even and maybe not even when they were writing that episode. So he just knew what the what was and had it all in there. But there's also, and that episode was directed by a woman whose wife at the time was pregnant when they were expecting. So they there was just babies all around. And Jay Ellis, who plays Lawrence on the show, was a new-ish dad. And I got the, so we were all, so much of the script felt so authentic to that time right after a baby comes. And then, but they're also very collaborative and we would be like, no, that doesn't ring true for me. Or like, I would say, why am I getting, I just talked about the lactation consultant. Why am I making this bottle of formula? I probably might be showing that I'm pumped. Or like, we would be talking about all kinds of things like that. And everyone was really open to that kind of collaboration. So I think that's what made it feel more authentic that there was just a lot of parents on the set. 
I think that we are seeing a shift and more people that work in Hollywood because I have plenty of clients and plenty of, you know, folks who've taken childbirth education from me in the past, you know, 17 years I've been here in LA that are, you know, they're the writers, they're the, as a matter of fact, there's, and I don't watch TV like so much, but I remember one time my, my boyfriend showed me some show and I swear it was like verbatim my childbirth class in this particular TV show. And I'm like, okay, which writer was in my childbirth class? Exactly. Like, so, well, maybe they should have given me some credit for that. Right? One. I'm like, maybe wait a second. I mean, so, you know, we, you know, but that's culture, right? We're, we're influenced. Issa not being a parent herself, but I mean, the ways that we saw parenting and motherhood reflected through many seasons. I mean, I'm thinking about Lawrence, when you guys were at the party, he was wearing the baby. I was like, yes, yes. I have the man with the infant carrier and the baby yes. was facing out. Like, I noticed all of the things. Yes. And everything. when Condola had her baby. I did. And you had the baby. I was like, skin to skin. Yes. You know, <laughs> so... <laughs> But it. these, like, our, our culture shifts these small ways, right? It's about normalizing, yeah. right? It's about normalizing the language of a lactation consultant, normalizing the language of, or, or just the visual of seeing a man with the infant carrier and yes. carrying his baby. And, you know, like, this this is this is how we shift culture, right? It's It, it seems small, but it's not small. And I was so grateful. I was like, as much as my own insecurity started to flare up, I was like, I'm so glad my body looks the way it looks now. It looks like I had a baby because I did. And so it, we see so many shows where a woman has a baby and then the next day her tummy is flat and her boobs look totally normal and she has no acne and her hair is gorgeous and it doesn't make sense. And I was like, you know, I've never been more grateful for this body of mine to look like she does and to show what it truly is authentically like to have a baby and you don't bounce back, you, you bounce forward. You, you, you learn to accept and embrace the ways your body has shifted as it provided a home for an infant. And so I was so grateful yeah. for so many And I think Prentice Penny, the showrunner of Insecure, who has three kids himself, mm. and he said, and they've all, they were all this very, like in everything, that show felt so authentic in so many ways. And I think when it came to birth and babies and parenting, they wanted it to be, have that same sort of authenticity. And it did. Absolutely. And I know Condola was a character, but I also appreciated the way the writers handled single pregnancy and navigating co-parenting and Condola saying to, to Lawrence, I want you to be happy. And then ultimately you and Issa having a conversation I'm like that was huge because you know what goes down. <laughs> and so even, <laughs> even I in the ways that it showed how it could be possible for, mm -hmm. you know, the, the quote unquote baby mama and the ex to be friends and to center the child and the child's best interest, which means the father needs to be happy, even if it's not with you. Like that is huge. Yeah. Did, did you so all beautiful. get that that was huge? I think that we didn't get how huge it would be, but I, I think we were all really grateful just as actors who, um, or who are parents or aunties or to see that the kids were the focus. And I think on so much TV, especially television that takes place in South LA and television that takes place with young black people, we, we see them messy, but we don't get to see it sort of being cleaned up and letting the child become the focus. And so as much as I love the drama of it all, I loved that the end of the series ends with Elijah with his father and his father's wonderful partner. And him being taken care of in a way that makes sense and loved. And it can mean 
that he gets just more love as opposed to the mess. It means that this child gets to be embraced by more people. And what a blessing that is. What a blessing. I'm telling you goosebumps, seriously, because for that to be a demonstration for our culture is, is, is incredibly powerful, incredibly powerful because so many times people do want to show the mess. And I think that there is a commercialization of the mess yeah. which perpetuates that as normal. And it's like, no, this, this can be our normal too. Right. And so mm-hmm. not to trade in those types of stereotypes around, you know, what our families can look like, what, what having extra love could be was just tremendous. So very grateful to all the ways that Insecure is a, a cultural contribution, but the ways that you all, what you all did for mothering, co-parenting relationships and the possibility of that was just incredible. And I just want to say thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to have been a part of telling that story. Truly. I close every episode by asking, what is our birthright? In a very broad way is informed consent. That's our birthright to be able to access information that you need as an individual to make the choices that you want to make in your life. Our birthright is the ability to choose for ourselves what works for us. And that goes for birth, that goes for pregnancy, that goes for parenting. And it's the access to the resources to make the best choices for us so that we're not doing what we necessarily saw done or prescribed to us, but that we're choosing our own path. And that's our birthright. Season two of Birthright is funded by the California Healthcare Foundation and the Commonwealth Fund. Birthright is produced by Motor City Woman Studios in Detroit with Kimberly Seals Allers as executive producer and Alexa Imani Spencer as researcher and assistant producer. Our music is by Dantrell Robinson and we dedicate this season in his memory. And don't forget to subscribe to Birthright wherever you get your podcast. Give us a rating and review if you like what you hear. Find episode notes and learn more at birthrightpodcast.com. And don't forget to like and follow the Birthright Podcast YouTube page for exclusive videos and extras. Follow at IMKSealsAllers on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And please support our Patreon account. Together, we are reclaiming our birthright one story at a time.